0: Alright, if, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, let's go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in uh, verse 21 today. We have been... I'm sorry, that's good. That's good stuff, man. I'm sorry, I ran out of breath. It's was working so hard there. Um, uh, so, so we've been working pretty hard these past few Sundays, and hopefully you, you would think that we work really hard every Sunday uh, with a very specific task, we've been we've been walking with the disciples as uh, chapter 14 kind of opens and it brings this this shift in the intensity of their lives. Uh, Jesus is coming in and he's spending some very concentrated times with them in the efforts to help them see who Jesus truly is and. A few chapters back, we were clued in on, on some of the conversations as Jesus uh, calms a storm. And as He does it, they, they kind of look around and they ask this very specific question, Who is this guy? Uh, who is this man that the winds and the waves obey Him? And and from there, we've seen in these incredible moments of Jesus that we see Him put Himself on display through through these acts of service and teaching and healing and, and even uh, in how he handles confrontation uh, in the conflict with the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes. And, and all of this has been done to help them and to help us uh, see him. Uh, but, but not just facets of him. He's, he's on display in these chapters, as he is in the entirety of all of, of God's word, on display as the Christ. As the chosen one, as, as the Messiah uh, who God has sent to rescue us from the dangers and the penalty of sin that causes death, separation uh, from Him. So, so we've been working hard uh, through these passages to see Jesus very clearly as our Savior and as our Lord. And this is important because uh, we, we will become like what we behold. Uh, and so we, we said it this way that that depending on how you see Jesus is how you worship Him. And, and in fact, Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter three. He says, "We all, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image, of one degree to the glory of glory to the another. Uh, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, so the more we behold." Christ. This is the equation. The more we behold Christ, the more we become like Him. Because the more beautiful He becomes, and the more vital He becomes, and the more we fix our attention and our affection on Him, the more our lives begin to resemble His. And our goal as we read uh, the Gospel of Matthew together, and really the goal of, of really any page of the Word is that we would behold the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would cherish him, and so where we arrived this morning is is very exciting. Uh, this is one of my favorite places to go in in all of the Gospels, uh, because we get to see Jesus in a way that he's always been, and yet he chose to be veiled on our behalf. Uh, he chose to be lesser than in a way, um, and and what we get to taste are things that are yet to come while we travel into the, one of the most exhilarating and awe-inspiring and, and worship-invoking portraits of Jesus in this Gospel. So, so as we get going here, let's stop, let's center our hearts, and let, let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, and we are just very mindful of the incredible work of Your Son. And for those of us who have placed our our lives in Your Son, we just, we say thank you. And we pray this morning through the power of Your Holy Spirit that that our eyes would be wide open, that our hearts would be would be unguarded in front of You, and that we would get to see just a glimpse of how Jesus is displayed. We love You. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said. Amen, amen. That's almost as good as your good morning. Um, so maybe you should practice that a little bit at home this week. Uh, so, all right, so, so there, there are a lot of incredible things to behold in these 13 verses. So let's, let's crawl through them. Let's, let's chew on them uh, as much as we can. So we'll start in verse uh, number one. Uh, and after six days, okay, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. They are the sons of Zebedee. Uh, Peter, James, and John—just James and John are brothers, not not Peter—and um, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so that this is the scene. Okay, Jesus is up at the the base of a mountain, and he says, "Hey, Peter, James, John, I want y'all to come with me." And so he leads them up on a high mountain and some of the most, if you've read the Bible or if you read the Bible currently, which hopefully you do, um, but if you read the Bible, you will find that some of the most powerful moments happen on top of mountains. Uh, in fact, this is why we call experiences with God, mountaintop experiences. These, these places where, where God meets us in such a profound way that we are changed forever. And, as we read the Old Testament, uh, some of the most intimate, clarifying, revealing aspects of God's character are noticed on top of mountaintops. It's it's, it's up to uh, it's up there that we are free from uh, the distractions of the rhythm of life, and we get to center in, and we get to meet uh, and step into the rhythm of of what God has for us and what God longs to do through us and in us and around us. And, uh, and this is the kind of environment that Jesus is creating uh, for Peter, James, and John who will become very integral parts of the gospel uh, taking root, of the church that we serve in today. Uh, they become very integral parts of that. And so Jesus leads them to this place for a life-changing moment with him. And this is, this is what happens, and in verse, starting in verse 2. And he, uh, being Jesus, was transfigured. If you like to circle in your Bible, circle that word, because that's going to that's gonna be important, because it's not a word we're necessarily common, uh, commonly referred to. Uh, and so, so he was transfigured before them. Okay, so how is he transfigured? Great question. Uh, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Okay, so I want you to try to image that as, as much as you can. That, that all of a sudden Jesus changes form. In fact, this word transfigured is is really uh, it's a pretty weak one as a description of what's taking place here. Uh, most commentators agree, though, that uh, this is probably the best available English word to translate uh, from the Greek that uh, from what Matthew is using in the Greek. In fact, the word is the. What he uses here is the form of the word "metamorpho." There's three O's at the end, so you have to say it that way. Oh, all right, metamorpho. All right, that's that's the that's the word that he's translating from, and it's it's the verb that it literally means to change form. Uh, in our English language, we get the word "metamorphosis" from this word, uh, and, and if you don't know what metamorphosis is, Mark, it's, it's basically. When a baby caterpillar becomes a mama butterfly, uh, that's called metamorphosis, alright? Um, so, got it? Good? He looked really confused, people. Um, in fact, it's the same word that, that Paul will use when he says, when he uses the word transformed. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, when, when he describes how we are transformed in, into the image of Christ through the gospel, and then again in Romans chapter twelve verse eight, when he comes in and he says that uh, that we are we must not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That that this is this is what we experience as we pursue holiness in Christ. We we begin to change form from our old self to our new self, and what would uh, and, and, and that would not be a weak word to describe us, because that's exactly what happens. Uh, it's weak when it's referred to with Christ, because that's, that's not exactly what's meaning, what, what's being meant here. Uh, that, that Jesus is being transformed, and that, that word trans, the, be, the prefix of it, means uh, a cross, and so, so what was crossed in the transfiguration, we, we might say it this way, that, that Jesus crossed the line from the natural to supernatural display. Okay, um, Not that his transfiguration is, is not something that's being added to him, though. Okay, I used to think that this was Jesus leveling up, but all of a sudden he was becoming even more strong. Right? Uh, but, but that's not the case here. He's not leveling up. Nothing's being added to him. Rather, something is being unveiled about him here. Uh, that, that for this brief, in this very beautiful moment, the cloak of his humanity, is that, which is what was veiling him, uh, is revealing his true glory. It's as if they, they take off the mask and you get to see Jesus... Who he truly is in this brief moment, and it's powerful, and it's beautiful, and it's opening, and it's happening right before their very eyes. The glory that that Peter and James and John held on this mountain, it wasn't a reflection; uh, it came from within him, inside him. The source was was being that cry was the source of this light. And this glory that's shining is the being of Christ. It's who He is. In fact, uh, the author of Hebrews describes Him as being uh, the brightness of God's glory. Uh, in fact, John, at the end of Revelation, chapter 22, he's describing the new Jerusalem. And he he, he says it this way, and I love this. He says, he says, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine it, in it, For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Okay? So this is just who Jesus is. Okay? Now, for our sake, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, for our sake, he puts on humanity and it veils that glory, it hides it. But in this moment, this is the glory that has always rested in Christ's while we walk through the Gospels with him. Yet, in his humility, he's willing to veil it so that he can accomplish what the Father has, has sent for him to do. But again, in this brief moment, this is beauty on display. His, his face shines like the sun, which is blinding, right? And his robe is blinding white. It's whiter than white, right? Which you can't have, but you get the idea. So, so any moment, Any moment you think of Jesus, and we said this a couple weeks ago, we said how irritating it is, and we all agreed because it's what I said. Um, But but, but any moment we want to walk up and treat Jesus as just our buddy, as just our sidekick, as just our co-pilot, we have grossly misunderstood Him. Grossly. Because the way He is described here is set apart from anything we have ever seen. It is the... The epitome of true beauty here, and so uh, Christ is in this form, uh, in, in which is plenty to draw us into worship. But but He's not alone. Okay, and this is this gets pretty interesting if, if you like to read the Bible. Um, so so here we go, verse number three. And behold, there appeared to them. Okay, so appeared to who? To Peter, James, John. Them. Good, good. I like your sarcasm. Um, appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay? So all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Those guys have been dead for a long, long time. Well, actually, not dead. Uh, one of them is dead. The other one just kind of got carried off into heaven in a chariot of fire. Uh, what a way to go. Um, and so, so so, the question, though, is this. Okay? Why those two? Right? I mean, God could have chosen to send anyone to have this moment with Jesus. Uh, and anyone, any of them and you would be like, yeah, that's fitting. He could have chosen Adam. He could have chosen uh, Abraham. He could have chosen David, a man after his own heart. He could have chosen any of the other uh, prophets. But yet he chooses these two people. He chooses Moses and he chooses Elijah. And so let's, let's talk about why that is, because recognizing the significance of these two guys help us better understand the passage, which helps us better understand Jesus. Each represents something important about the work he's been accomplishing through being our Messiah. That, so, so let's talk about Moses in your talk notes. That Moses represents the law, which had reflected the glory of God. Moses represents the law which had reflected the glory of God. In fact, uh, on a mountaintop experience, on the top of Mount Sinai, God meets with Moses, okay, and has an incredibly beautiful, glory-filled moment. In fact, in this moment, Moses, with a side note, Moses will ask God, hey, I, I, I just want to see your glory. And God says, Bubba, you can't contain that. You can't handle that. You would die. Uh, and so what I'll do is I will I will give you this moment. I will... "...put you in the cleft of this mountain, I will cover your face with my hand." Which I think is such a beautiful thought, that Moses was that close to smell God's hand. Um, and so, he says, "...I will pass by, and I will let you see the back of me." Uh, and as he does this, uh passes by. Now, something happens, but we don't know it yet. So, so after this moment, God gives Moses the law. Uh, and now, why does he give him the law? Because these people, the Israelites have never experienced freedom. They don't really know how to honor God with their lives. And so, so God gives them the law to reveal to them holy living, how to live in a way that, that pleases God. Now, Moses comes off this mountaintop experience not realizing what happened, that he sees the glory of God and he reflects it in his face and he is literally glowing Uh, but not glowing in the beautiful way that a pregnant woman glows. Uh, Glowing in a terrifying way that people run away from him, okay? So that he has to veil his face because he has seen the glory of God just the backside. And so, so Moses represents this glory, and part of this moment involved... Moses bringing the law to the people. And so as we read the Bible, though, we we learn that the law of God is given to us as a placeholder until Christ can come. Now, we don't do away with the law. We don't say, well, then I can just do whatever now that Christ has come, because that law still shows us holy living. But we find our appeasement. We find our, our satisfaction in Christ, not in the law. And so uh, so, so Moses is here in this transfiguration moment as a representative of the law that Christ would would fulfill. Now, let's talk about Elijah because uh, Elijah is one of the most interesting prophets of them all. Uh, Elijah represents the prophets who had proclaimed God's glory. Okay, they had proclaimed God's glory. The prophets, uh, Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal uh, in First in Corinthians eighteen. Uh, is perhaps one of the clearest examples of this truth. Uh, he sees these men who are worshiping false gods, and he says, let's let's see whose God is most strong. Uh, and so, uh, it, it, you, sh- you need to go there. I won't give you the whole spill. Uh, but it ends up him calling down fire from heaven, and it burns all this stuff, and he's like, told you. Uh, and so, but, but he proclaimed the glory of, of the one true God overbel over the other gods that the, God's people have been worshiping. And his proclamation of God's glory brought down the fire from heaven. And then in, in the next chapter, in 19, Elijah flees for his life in fear of, of Jezebel. Uh, and the, there's this story of him hiding out and God revealing himself to him in Mount Horeb uh, in, in just the softest of a whisper. The softness of a whisper, God speaks to him. And, and Elijah here, and he represents the prophets who proclaim the heart of the Father. Okay, We think of prophets as people who attend prophecy in our world as, as things that are yet to come, and that's part of it. Uh, but a prophet in the Bible is simply a person that says, this is what God wants me to tell you. Okay, And some of that has to do with the now, Some of this has to do with if you continue on this course, this will be the result. Okay, so 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 this is what Elijah is representing, and and I think a lot can be said about this passage. Uh, But suffice to say that God has taken these two men. Okay, He's taken Moses representing the law, and He takes Elijah representing the prophets of God, and then they're having a conversation with Jesus, and the role that Jesus plays with both of them. Is really interesting because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now revealing God's glory. Okay, he's now revealing God's glory. That word revealing is key. That Jesus wasn't merely reflecting or proclaiming a divine glory. That Jesus was is the revelation of divine glory. That that's put another way, Jesus doesn't just mirror or imitate the glory of God. He is the glory of God, and so. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He comes in and he says, He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, I've come to... Fulfill them, and then again in Luke 16, he'll say that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Which means he doesn't come to repeal it. He doesn't say he doesn't come and say, "Hey guys, new game, um, I'm, I'm wiping the, the board clear." He says, "No, I'm coming to fulfill. I'm coming to complete." those things. And then in verse seventeen he'll end up saying that it's easier in for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And so Jesus changes everything and he is the culmination of the entire Old Testament revelation. Everything that's said in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. And so John who, who is on this mountaintop, we would later write as he opens his own gospel he says he says the word became flesh and took residence among us and we observed his glory he we observed his glory and then he would say that, that he has Jesus has revealed the Father and so this is this is why what happens next is important to us and so so as they're talking, right, the good question would be, what are they talking about, right? To be a fly on that wall. What, what is Moses and Elijah and Jesus discussing? And Luke gives us an insight. Luke will tell us that, uh, that what they are discussing is Jesus' departure, which he would accomplish in Jerusalem, which connects us, right? to what Jesus told the disciples last week. He said, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, They will arrest Him. They will kill Him. To which Peter says, not you, Jesus. And to which Jesus says, shh, idiot. That's what He says. That's in the Greek. So He says, no, this must happen. And so here we have this moment, and they're discussing the departure. They're discussing the things that are about to happen. And then Peter, verse 4, Peter, I actually love it. At this point, anytime it says, and Peter, you're like, oh, this is going to be good. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If, if you wish, I, I will make three tents here: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Okay, and this is what I love. Verse five: He was still speaking. Okay, he was still speaking when, behold, a great cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him." And so Peter, okay, here's what's happening. I, this is what I think is happening. Peter is experiencing this moment and he wants to make a monument out of it. So this is incredible. This is incredible. I just, I want to live here for the rest of my life. I'll sleep on the ground. Let me build you guys some tents and we will just stay here and we will live in this moment for as long as we can. And some of us can't fault him, right? Because we've experienced intimacy with God in such a profound way that you say, I just, if this was my last breath, that's fine. I just, I just want to be here. He wants to stay in this moment as long as possible. He wants to live on this mountaintop experience, forgetting or ignoring the lives that will be changed when they come down from the mountain. And I think this, this is the hard part of, and it's the forgotten part of mountaintop experiences. That, that we don't live there because life change happens at the ground level. Just just track with the Bible. That every person who's on the mountaintop eventually comes down because what God has revealed to them isn't just for them, it's for the benefit of the world. It's for others. So Moses doesn't live on top of Mount Sinai with the law. He says, no, this is beneficial to to you guys, so you would understand how to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. And so, so Peter, if if Peter and James and John lived the remaining of their days on this mountaintop with Jesus, we never would experience the rescue of the cross because Jesus would have never made it to Jerusalem. In this, Causes a lot of other issues in our lives. We never experience the Holy Spirit. We never experience love. We never experience joy. We never have peace. We never have those things if Peter has his way and makes this moment into a monument. And then I think there's another mistake that Peter makes is he says, you know, let us let us make tents for, for you and Moses and Elijah, essentially saying, You know, hey, you guys are equal. We're on equal ground, you three. Y'all are like the big three. You can bring a championship to our city, you three, right there. That's all we need. Some of you basketball people get that. Some of you basketball people that don't get it, you're like, oh, anyways. um, And what God essentially does is he interrupts Peter. What a humbling thought, right? What a humbling reality that your words, Peter, stop. I want you to see him. I want you to experience him. This is my son. This is my son. You're trying to please me. I want you to know this is my son, and I am pleased in him. I am thankful in him. I am loving in him. I am compassionate through him. He is mine. Listen to him. And what has Jesus been saying? I'm going to the cross. Listen to him. And so they hear the voice of God and and they have this proper response of worship in fear and in trembling. And then I I love in verse 7 it says this let's go back to verse 6. When the disciples heard this they fell on their faces they were terrified but Jesus came. Okay and I love that. If you like to circle words in your Bible. But Jesus came and touched them and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Have no fear. And let me tell you this, okay? If you're wondering, what does Jesus do on our behalf for the Father? It's exactly that. You come before the Father in all your fear, all your trembling, you see your incredible lack of worth before Him. And the proper response, and not even the proper response, the response of your life is, is falling down before Him. That's why it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Okay? So you fall before the Father, and this is what Jesus does for you, and I love this. He comes over, and He touches you, and He says, get up. Have no fear. Just, that's... He's my dad. He's my dad. I've gone before Him on your behalf. I have made it to where you cannot only be in the same room with him, but you can have a relationship with him. So he comes and he touches them. And I, I, I can't imagine this, the touch this week, is, it, those two words have, have wrapped me up. Because what a compassionate yet empowering touch that must have been. He touches them. He says, Rise, have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one but Jesus only. So it's coming to an end, right? Because we weren't supposed to live there. We were visiting. We were being equipped. And it's over. Verse 9. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so we're we're coming up with a good question. Uh, And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he's referring to John the Baptist. Um, Which comes and we don't we don't have time to kind of open that can of worms um, Because what I want us to do is to see this question and I want us to ask this question What do these verses tell us about Jesus? Okay, because too often in the bible in fact too often we come to church and we say well, what can I learn? About me or what can this help me see? Okay, but here in these verses we don't get to see anything about us Except for maybe Peter, who should just, we should just learn to sit and shut up at times, right? But this is about Jesus. This is about His glory being displayed. So let me, let me give you four things that happens here that we learn about Jesus. That number one, He radiates the splendor of God. He radiates... The splendor of God. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And I, I still feel that if we were there in that moment, those would be very hard words to be able to use even to describe it. Like, in our language that fails us so often, that we're like, that's the closest. That's the closest we could come. It's as if a curtain were pulled back so that we could catch a glimpse of glory that one day will be our Every moment experience Jesus spoke of this glory. in fact, he will pray in John seventeen uh, that that God would return to him the glory that he had before the world existed, yet yet when he came to the earth, the full manifestation of christ's glory again is veiled we, when you say well where where do we get that right? Where do you come up with that? Uh, not just on my own, Philippians chapter two says that, that he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, by taking on the likeness of man. Uh, and we, we see Jesus' weakness, we see his humiliation played out in the gospel accounts, but, 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 but during these couple of moments, we get to see something different. In fact, the quote, to, to quote the the author of Hebrews, the disciples saw again the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Number two, he unveils the presence of God. He unveils the presence of God and in, in the Transfiguration we see that, that he unveils the presence, that the bright cloud overshadowed the scene and it reminds us of the this Old Testament, Imagery of God leading His people and God protecting His people through the presence of a cloud. And that shows you just how incredibly powerful He is. That just a cloud can stop forces. Just a cloud can lead you to the promised land. In fact, on a number of occasions, uh, this is the way that God manifests His presence. He has a cloud that protects His people as they left Egypt. He has a cloud that descends on Mount Sinai. Uh, where where the people on the ground can look up and they say Moses is up there and he's meeting with God. Well how do you know? because the cloud of his presence is hovering there. it's engulfing it. that we see the cloud of glory enveloped when when the tabernacle is built it says that God came and rested among his people there. that the presence of this cloud of the cloud is in this moment is both an endorsement, Of what Jesus is coming to accomplish, and an indication that God is at work in these moments. And this is what Jesus is unveiling to them. Number three, he embodies the pleasure of God. He embodies the pleasure of God. The Father's voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. Listen. To him, And these are the same words, uh, except for the listen to him, that that Jesus, that God says when Jesus is being baptized back in Matthew chapter 3. It says, John, reluctantly at first, is baptizing Jesus, and then all of a sudden the heavens open up. A cloud, a spirit like a dove came upon him, and then a voice from heaven shook. He's mine. He's mine, and I love him. I am pleased in him. Number four, he speaks the word of God. The, the father adds one thing here that he doesn't add in, in uh, chapter three. He just says, listen to him. What he has to say is truth because he is the truth. What he has to say, you need to listen to. And, and I think when you hear that, we can't help but think of, of Peter. The one who showed himself so quickly to speak in this previous chapter is now again uh, speaking in this passage. And and it's as if the, the father is telling Peter, be quiet, listen to my son. And when he speaks about the coming cross, listen. Listen, don't rebuke him. Don't get in his way. Just listen. Because as you listen, the Holy Spirit will eventually bring those things back to mind back to your heart so that you can understand all that's at play here. And so you, you can't avoid the cross that's to come. This is what God is telling Peter. God's command uh, to Peter picks up on this this prophecy that Moses gives us uh, in Deuteronomy 18. He says the Lord God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me um, from among your brothers, and you must listen to him. And this is what Jesus has said, this is what Moses has said, that there will come a prophet who is greater than me. And for the Jewish people, Moses was about as good as it came, because he led them to freedom. Right? And so you get to see this imagery in the Old Testament and the New Testament about the role of of Jesus as he leads people to freedom, and the freedom that that Jesus leads is much greater than, much more vital than the freedom that Moses led his people to. So, we can start wrapping this up. And some of you are like, thank God. So, so I started by talking about the transfiguration, and, and, and I said I've always thought of it as this moment where, where Jesus was leveling up. That, like, he was finally getting some armor, Right? He was just getting stronger all of a sudden. And that's, that's not what we get to see here. And I think to believe that would to believe that Jesus at some point was lesser than or, or less than able to be our Savior and our Lord. And He's not. He's fully capable. And in this moment we get to see that opened up. And for some of us, We've never seen Him in even just a glimpse of this. We've never seen Him in His glory. We don't look for Him as glorious. And it's a shame. Because the transfiguration is this revelation of who Jesus was, who He is and who He will forever be. What we get to see here is a taste of heaven. That's that's what's on display here in Matthew 17. It's a taste of heaven. And Peter, James, and John, they get to see this. And I believe they see it because this moment will propel them for the rest of their lives. I think the hardest thing that they had coming off of this mountain was this moment when Jesus said, Don't tell anybody about it. How can we not? How can we not tell people how incredibly powerful and beautiful and glory filled you are? How can we not do that? He says, Don't tell them yet. Because that veil has to remain, because I'm going to the cross. This isn't a temporary thing with Jesus. That Jesus, Because Jesus forever and ever and ever is the Lord of glory. And it's, it's no wonder the disciples were filled with passion for the work of the kingdom after their eyes saw what took place on that mountain. And this is the issue for us, right? So I, I, I haven't seen Jesus like that. Maybe that's why I dragged my feet. Maybe that's why I'm not urgent with the gospel. Maybe that's why I'm reluctant with my service. And in Christ, we have something more powerful than just that little glimpse. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. And He reminds us of the incredible payment that Christ paid. So so how do we respond to this glorious insight of the glory of Jesus revealed that we remembered that He was willing? And this this is the most powerful thought for me. That we remember that He had all that glory and yet willfully chose to veil it. He willfully chose to put on shoes that were beneath Him, to put on a robe that was not white as white, that did not glorify Him. He chose to put on dirt. He chose to live with us. And we remember that. And to me, there's this old song we used to sing. It's called, Thank You, Lord. And we're, we're going to wrap up with that. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, you're like, is he going to do something weird? Well, maybe, but just not that. Um, but we, we ask this question, okay, how do we wear Matthew 17:1 through 13? How do we wear that? How do we put it on? How do we carry that with us? How do we take that in our hearts? And I think very simply, we think about Christ His willingness to put on our humanity and our response is just thanksgiving. It's just being thankful. And out of that thanksgiving, we walk with Him. Not because of your word, but because of His great ability to draw you in. Our desire this week is to love God by loving people. Please stand with me. As we start to wrap up, I want to give you some opportunities to pray. Keith and, and Kim and uh, Mark will be up here. We want to pray with you. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. We want, to, we want to help you start that process. And maybe after we sing, you just want to take some time and thank Jesus through communion. We have those elements available. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father. We thank You that Jesus was willing to veil His glory for a brief time. And we are thankful to You that His glory is on display today. Father, give us eyes and hearts that long to pursue that kind of glory. That we long to make much of Jesus and less of us. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.